Well, good morning. I'm uh, Pastor Jonathan. I'm on staff at the Norton Church, uh, Norton Campus, and uh, it's just great to be good. It's great to be with you again uh, this morning. Uh, I was with you, uh, I guess it was about a month ago, and uh, as I was thinking about it, a lot has happened since then. Uh, We've experienced winter, spring, summer, and winter again in a month. And so it's kind of an interesting thing of living in Ohio, but uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share in this series on 1 John with you this morning. Glad you're here. There was a young man who saw a young lady from afar and decided, I'm going to marry her. I'm going to marry her someday. And so, but instead of going up and introducing himself, he, he decided, I'm going to write her a letter. I'm going to write her a letter to express my, my undying love for her and her beauty. And, and he decided he was going to write a letter every week for a couple months just expressing his love to her and how beautiful she is and how one day they're going to get married. And so he did that for about two or three months, a letter every week expressing his undying love. He didn't receive anything in return. And so he decided, well, maybe I need to double, triple my efforts, so I'm going to write her every day, just expressing my love for her and how beautiful she is, and one day we're going to get married. And so that's what he did. For the next few months, he, he wrote her a letter every day. In fact, some days he wrote two or three letters expressing his love to her. Well, the result is she married the, mo- the mailman. Obviously, his uh, attempt (laughs) to show love failed, and I think it's a hard lesson that that each of us have learned, but that love can be a a risky business. Though the saying is true, it's better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. It doesn't make love or loss any easier. In fact, I think most of us have felt the heartbreak of lost love. Sometimes our relationships, though, and, uh, and our love are, are like a child holding a, a father's hand. And one minute she, she feels, she feels uh, secure, grabbing hold of her father's hand, secure in his presence. The next moment she lets go to chase after a balloon or, or go to be with her friends. But as we'll see today, God's love is not like that. God's love is unlike anything we experience in the world. God's love is not like our love. In fact, the roles are reversed as his children. We're not holding his hand, he's holding ours. That makes a world of difference. And think about it, would you rather have a child hold your hand as you cross a busy intersection or would you rather have your hand holding tightly to theirs? That's our relationship with God. As his children who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior and Lord, God holds firmly to our hand and will never let go. We have confidence in his love. We're anchored to him through his commitment to us. Because of his love, we have certainty of our eternity. If you're here this morning and have yet to say yes to Jesus, maybe you're just checking things out. We're glad you're here. And it's my hope that as we look at what the Bible says about love and loving one another, you'll get a better sense of, of who God is and what it means to follow Jesus. 
But if you're a follower of Jesus, I, I hope this is a reminder of God's incredibly great love for you. How God defines and, and then demonstrates that love in a way that motivates us to love and to live well. I mean, let's face it, people can be hard to love. I mean, maybe you, you thought you were marrying Prince Charming but woke up next to Grumpy. In fact, there, there may even be people here this morning that, that you find hard to love because maybe they've hurt you intentionally or even unintentionally or maybe, you've had a, maybe you have a different way at looking at life and living life. Maybe they, for some reason, just get on your nerves. But here's the reality. We all have people in our lives that we sometimes have a hard time loving, but what do we do? The Bible tells us we love them anyway. We forgive them. We do good to them. We pray for them. We, we help them. This is the message Jesus' disciple, John, wants us to hear and learn and apply this morning. And so we're continuing in our series on 1 John, so I encourage you to grab your Bible or device and, and turn to 1 John chapter 3. Toward the end of your Bibles, uh, in fact, you work backwards, Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and then 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John was written toward the end of the Apostle John's life. He had, he had been a close friend of Jesus and had witnessed the persecution and deaths of, of some of his friends, his fellow followers of Jesus, his disciples. And now he writes to the church and summarizes what it means to follow Jesus in a mixed up, confused, and chaotic world. You see, Jesus had seen the love of Jesus displayed again and again through, through the time that he had spent with Jesus for three years together. But on Jesus' final night in the upper room, Jesus demonstrates his love with complete clarity. And he takes a basin of water and he washed his followers' feet and, he, and then he encouraged them with these words. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, my followers, if you love one another. Then John saw the supreme demonstration of Jesus' love when Jesus willingly went to the cross to die for our sins. It's interesting though, in this first letter of John, five times John refers directly to Jesus' command, let us love one another. Because the mark of the church is love. The mark of our lives as followers of Jesus is love. In other words, how I love others matters to God and the people around me. I'm always impacting and influencing others by the way I love people. The way I live my life and love others is a reflection of God's love for me. But in order to, for me to love well, Jesus has to be my focus. He has to be my anchor. When Jesus is my focus, I learn to love well and I'm motivated to love deeply and widely. However, when I lose that focus, my love can become selfish and, and self-serving and sometimes self-absorbed. So my love must always be anchored to God's love. See, when I realize that my life and my love matters and Jesus is my focus and anchor for living selflessly, 
when I realize the outrageous and extravagant love God is lavishing on me and has lavished on me, when I understand the commitment of God's love for his children, I have a certainty of eternity. In fact, John's main point is that love identifies those who have life. And so we look at what John says in verse 11 of chapter 3. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Again, it's repeated several times. And in the next chapter, verse, or chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Verse 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. You see, it's a simple command motivated by an enormous truth that has huge implications for us. John wants us to make sure that we understand that love is, is not an optional virtue for the follower of Jesus. And so here John says, this is a message which you've heard from the very beginning. Jesus taught this truth to his followers from the very beginning. God's love flowing through us to one another is the distinguishing mark of followers of Jesus. It's the distinguishing mark of the church. But to know how to love one another, we need a definition of love. You see, the world defines love as a feeling you feel when you feel a feeling you've never felt before. <laughs> you know, it's all about what I feel. But as we know, love is, is more than a feeling. Love is a, is, loving one another is more than just warm fuzzies toward one another. So what is it? John begins his description of love by first giving us an example of what love is not. And so we read on in verse 12, do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. And so my natural love, my default love is selfish. Now John says, don't be like Cain. Ever hear someone say, you know, I'm gonna raise some Cain, or I'm not my brother's keeper? It's fascinating, those phrases come from this story of Cain and Abel come from this story. And the story that John's referring to is found in, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter four. And it's a story of a first murder, a jealous man killing his very own brother. And as much as it's a fascinating story, it's also a story that's, that's dark and tragic. Now we don't have time to go there this morning, so here's a summary. Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, they had two sons, Cain and Abel. Now Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a, <clears throat> was a farmer. And at one time, at one point, they both make a sacrifice to God and Cain brings some, from, some fruit from his fields. And Abel, he brings the firstborn of his flock. And the Bible says the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. 
But on Cain and his offering, he did not, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And so the Lord sees all this and he confronts Cain's anger and, and attitude and, and encourages him to do what's right and, and warns him that if he continues on this course, that sin's going to get the best of him. Well, Cain ignores God's warning, invites Abel to walk out with him into the field, and there's where he commits bloody murder against his brother. We're told that Abel obeyed by faith, but Cain, in disobedience, brought an unacceptable offering. But whatever we say about these two offerings, I believe the real difference between them was in the heart. You see, Abel had faith, Cain didn't. Abel believed God and offered the best he had. Cain lacked faith and apparently was just kind of going through the motions. So here's what we pull out of this story. Here's what we know. Number one, the first murder takes place within the family. The fact that Cain killed his brother in 11 verses is repeated seven times. Cain killed his brother. Cain killed his brother. Cain killed his brother. It's, it's a big deal. The author wants us to, to focus in on Cain killed his very own flesh and blood. The second is the first murder takes place after a worship service. So Cain and Abel shared the same parents, the same spiritual background, the same home life. No doubt had heard the same stories from their parents, from Adam and Eve, about life in paradise and its beauty and perfection and then their expulsion from the garden because of sin. Yet they heard, they had all these things similar, but they went two different directions. One followed God and one followed his own desires. And as I think about the story, as I think about these, these things, I, I think about, boy, how easy is it to hurt those we love? How easy is it for us to hurt people in our own family? I mean, no one makes us more angry like members of our own family. I mean, often the meanest things we say are reserved for those closest to us. You see, it's easy to show kindness and compassion to people we hardly know while treating our loved ones poorly. I mean, think about, think about it. One minute you're making an offering to God, the next you're murdering your own flesh and blood. How quickly the heart can turn from worship to mayhem. There is a little cane in each one of us. In 1 John 3.12, we read that, that Cain belonged to the evil one. Human history and the Bible certainly don't make sense unless we recognize that there's a cunning, evil personality that exists to oppose the heart of God. He preys on our weaknesses. He manipulates our strengths. And yet, Cain chose to listen to the rival of, a, of God, and as a result, he loved himself more than his brother. You see, our actions reveal who we're following. And I think that's what, what John's point is here, is that your actions reveal who you're following. Cain murdering his brother re <clears throat> revealed who he followed. And it wasn't God. And see, a person whose life is marked by selfish hatred of others shows no evidence of new life in Christ. 
John uses grammar and language that points to the overall direction of a person's life. A person's person whose life is marked by a pattern of selfishness and envy and anger and bitterness and hatred gives evidence that he remains in spiritual death. See, selfish love is motivated by what I get out of the relationship. Selfish love looks for ways I can use or, or manipulate others to promote myself, to increase my reputation, to fill my own pockets, to serve myself. Selfish love gets angry when it doesn't receive what's expected. Selfish love makes love all about me. And so if we're not to be like Cain, who are we to be like? I think the answer is obvious. We're to be like Jesus. John moves us from murder to the wonderful news that begins in verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You see, my love focused on Jesus is a, not a selfish love, but a selfless love. Jesus defines real love. Love is something you do. It's an action. Jesus laid down his life for us. Jesus spent himself for us so that so we ought to spend ourselves for others. But understand, John's not saying here, Jesus did a lot for you, now you owe him. So make up what you owe by paying off the debt. That's not the idea here. See, John's argument is is that nothing other than love makes sense because Jesus laid down his life for us so we ought to lay down our lives for one another. The one who has been forgiven much loves much. Our our experience of Jesus' love for us makes it impossible to choose anything else. Nothing else makes sense. If we allow the love of Christ to touch us deeply, it it compels and it motivates us to love each other. It's the only logical response to being deeply loved. So selfless love looks like and is a response to Jesus. Selfless love is loving like Jesus. Selfless love is modeled and motivated by Jesus. John says it again in another way in chapter four, verse nine. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. In other words, he covered our sin, he forgave us, he rescued us from the penalty and wrath of a holy God, the the penalty and wrath that we deserved, and he gave us peace, he gave us new life. Thomas Akempis wrote, a wise lover values not so much the gift of the lover as the love of the giver. I think we need to value the love of the giver for our God is love. And John keeps pointing us back to God. He keeps pointing us back, pointing us back. Pointing us back to God and his gift of love for us. 
See, God love, God's love moved him to send his own son who took the penalty that we rightly deserve. Jesus took our sin upon himself and died for us. God completely and totally took the initiative to give us new life. In other words, God didn't just tell us he loved us. He showed us he loved us by sending Jesus for us. See, God didn't send his son just to get our attention. Rather, he sent his son to rescue us in order that we might live through him. He gave his life so we might have new life. See, loving like Jesus originates and is empowered by the fact that God himself is love. Again, 4.16, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. In other words, love originated with God. It's who he is. It's what we sang earlier. He's a good, good father. He's a God of love. That's who he is. That's who he is. God is the originator, the inventor, the source of love. God is love. Notice he doesn't say love is God. As if who we believe in doesn't matter as long as we we love. He doesn't say God is loving as, as if love is just one of many attributes. No, God is love. His very nature is love. And he loves us without condition. I like to refer to this as um, God's scandalous love. And I use that term scandalous because it means something shocking. It's something outrageous. And to us, it's, it's a love that it, it, it is. It's shocking. It doesn't make sense. It's not proper that anyone should love like our God. It is scandalous. And as a result, as people who have rearranged our lives around Jesus as Savior and Lord, who have experienced God's love, we should love one another. And beginning in verse 19, John then addresses a different concern. Sometimes condemning words come from within and condemn us. Verse 19, this is what, how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. See, selfless love gives me assurance. See, our hearts sometimes condemn us when we're convicted of sin in our own lives. It's sort of like that warning light on the dashboard saying, hey, there's something wrong, something you need to pay attention to, something you need to deal with and take care of. But here's the problem. I've never met an honest Christian who hasn't at some time experienced their own heart's condemnation this way. Man, I'm such a failure. I'm such a phony. I'm such a hypocrite. God is so disappointed in me. And often this kind of self-condemnation makes us turn away from God's love and his grace It makes us run away from him rather than to him. So how can we know that the Lord Almighty, the God of the universe, the creator, is on our side, loving us, seeing us to the end? Because I have questions like, you know, maybe he's too busy to really care about me. Maybe in the whole scheme of things, I'm, I'm just too insignificant for him to give me a second thought. 
I mean, what if my sins have caused him the regret that, that I even exist? What, what if I don't feel loved by him? And when we begin to ask those questions, when we feel condemned and abandoned, we become vulnerable to everything else that wants a piece of our lives. The truth is, God wants us to know his love, wants us to experience his love, to feel his love, not with a sentimental feeling, but with a deep certainty that God, the creator of all things, though we deserve it, is not opposed to me, is not opposed to us. He is for us, and he loves us unconditionally. He will never let us go. When we receive God's love, he will never stop loving us. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. He's holding me in his hand and won't let go. I don't know about you, but that's a powerful assurance to me. It's amazing to me. It's scandalous. And so the alternative to a condemning heart and a downward spiral of guilt-reinforcing self-hatred is confidence before God. And I I think it's important to make this clear. You can't make God love you more or less than he already does. God's love for you is committed. It's a perfect love. You have the assurance of his love. You don't need to earn it. You don't work for it. Your acts of love for others are a result of God's love for you, not a payment for it. It's the difference between living for God as, uh, as a loving father as opposed to seeing God as a boss who's keeping his eye on you, watching you, waiting for you to mess up so he can fire you. You see, when we walk with him, live for him, love like him, we live in his pleasure. But how do we do that? How do we love like our father? How do we love like God? Verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, Let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. You see, selfless love is an action. It's not just a, it's not simply an intention. John's addressing the problem that sometimes we talk a lot about love. We talk a lot about love, we sing about love, but it becomes a substitution for love and action. I think our our current technology has expanded the opportunity for us to do a lot of talking. In fact, I think today John might write, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech or texts or tweets, but with action and in truth. Many years ago, I um, I led a, a small group, a life group in Philadelphia, and we were having a prayer time and I was, <clears throat> I was leading so I was taking the requests and writing them down and somebody said, well, <clears throat> my friend is going on a mission trip. She's going overseas and, and she's gonna be helping these children and just loving and serving people. And, but she can't go until she has uh, the rest of the money. So I wrote it down and the rest of the requests and it came time to pray, and as I said, okay, well, let's, let's pray for these things we've talked about. One of the guys in the group, Bob, just, he spoke up. He said, well, 
you know, we're praying for your friend who needs a certain amount. How much does she need? And it was an amount like $50. He's like, oh, okay. He goes, well, and he pulls out his wallet, pulls out a 10 and puts it in the middle of the room. He says, you know, I, I think we can answer that prayer. Pretty soon everybody's digging in their purses and in their wallets and taking out their change and dollar bills and 10s and 20s. And within two minutes, we had the $50 to bless this young woman. You know, it, it taught me an important lesson. Sometimes rather than praying, we become the answer to the need. I mean, how awesome is it to, to answer the prayer even before it's prayed? <laughs> it's love in action. Uh, that night we love this person, not with prayers and words, but with action and in truth. Another way of, of saying what John has written is let us, stop, let us stop just saying we love each other. Let us really show it by our actions. And it's practical. It's a giving of ourselves every day. It's doing good for people in ordinary ways. You see, something incredible happens to people who receive God's best gift of his son, Jesus, into their lives. They start to love like God loves they start to serve like God serves. Their, their love is expressed in action. But I think we sometimes miss what that means because we think that expressing God's love demands something spectacular or sensational, something big. <laughs> but I like how one person explains it and he says, we, we think giving our all to the Lord is taking a $1,000 bill, laying it on the table and saying, Here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. But the reality is for most of us is that he sends us to the bank and has us cash in that $1,000 bill for quarters. And we go through life giving out 25 cents here and a quarter here and 50 cents here and a dollar here. We listen to a neighbor kid's troubles we go to a ministry meeting. We pour some water for a, for a thirsty patient in the hospital. We give encouragement to a stressed out waitress. We invest in a relationship over a Coke or a coffee. We ask questions and then wait and listen. We provide a meal. We, we stay later and help clean up. We, we give up our favorite seat and determine to get, some, get to know someone I haven't met yet. You see, here's the reality. Often giving our life and time and resources to Christ isn't, isn't spectacular and sensational. I mean, there's no fanfare or confetti or trumpets or no one hands me a trophy. It's done in all these little things, all these little acts of love, 25 cents at a time, little by little over the long haul. It's a lifestyle. It's being faithful and available. It's, it's seizing opportunities, taking advantage of divine interruptions, looking for appointments to love people. You see, whenever you teach a child or, or host a life group or prepare a meal for someone in need, whenever you clean a bathroom or sweep a floor just because it needs it, all of a sudden your love moves out of the theoretical and abstract to being practical and personal. 
You see, it's these small acts of love, 25, 50 cents at a time that are important to God. Why? It's love in action. It becomes a lifestyle of giving and loving. It's intentional love that remembers and recognizes that Jesus Christ laid down his life for me. You see, it's easy to say, yeah, I'd I'd lay my life down for my brother or sister. It's another to put love in action inch by inch, minute by minute, one quarter at a time. Setting aside self to serve others. You see, none of these things are likely to change the world. However, they might change us into the kind of people who give themselves for the good of others and love others well. I mean, think about this. Every time we engage in small acts of servanthood, small acts of of love, putting others before ourselves, we participate in this amazing grand story of Jesus coming to serve and to give and to love. We reflect his nature, his character of love. And so this morning, as we think about these things, where do you see a need? What's stirring inside of you? What what makes you weep? What burns within you? What makes you say, why doesn't somebody do something about that? And go there and make a difference. One quarter at a time. Ask God, what can I do about this? Lean into him to be empowered by his kind of love, a selfless, sacrificing, giving love. See, God's great, perfect, scandalous love is what I need, what we need to love one another. See, as you think about this this week, will there be something, one small thing you determine to do this week that will remind the world of a love that is supernatural? A love that is out of this world, a love that reflects God's love. You see, that's our confidence, that's our certainty, our assurance and security. And I close with these words from John who says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. It's a pretty awesome truth. Let's pray.